Hello, listeners. Just wanted to apologize that this episode posted a week late. The start of the new school year, combined with the Jewish holidays, really put me back a bit. But as of now, we should be back on schedule. So on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 11, Suspension and Disbelief. For this episode, you've all been summoned to the principal's office. We're going to be talking about the history, operations, and research behind one of the educational practices which I've personally always found rather troubling. Suspension. The act of removing a student from the classroom, and often from the school entirely, as a disciplinary consequence for violating a school rule. Even as a kid, I often used to wonder at the logic of taking students who were acting in a way that made me think they didn't want to be in school and punishing them by taking them out of school. After I became a teacher, I grew even more concerned about how it was the students who were often struggling the most academically, and whose consequent disengagement often seemed to influence, if not outright explain, their disruptive behavior, were then disciplined by making them miss even more school and pushing them even farther behind. Over the course of my work after I became an education scholar, I read with dismay how suspension was and continues to be a punishment differentially applied to African-American and Latinx students versus white ones, further reinforcing and exacerbating race-based achievement gaps. In 2015, the Center for Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA found that each year about 3.5 million K-12 public school students in America are suspended from school at least once totaling 18 million days of class time missed each year between them. Clearly, this is a topic that merits a closer look. School discipline as a concept exists in the DNA of formal schooling in a way that far predates public education in the United States. Teachers have always, to some extent, in their role as acting in loco parentis, exercised certain privileges, for good or ill, to impose consequences for what they felt to be disruptive or undesirable behavior with their students, often physical consequences in the form of corporal punishment. We had a whole episode about the history of corporal punishment in U.S. public schools in episode four of this season, and way back in season one, episode 10, we talked about the much more nuanced concept of classroom management, how effective teachers create and enforce a system of consistent norms and procedures, and build community within their classroom as a means of making sure that class runs efficiently and that learning takes place with minimal disruptions. But that's not really what suspensions are about. Considering how, at least at the state level, public education has been enshrined as a right for children in the United States, the idea of having a tool in the arsenal of disciplinary interventions be something that abrogates that right, keeping a child from getting their education, that's a pretty serious thing. As far as I've been able to research, suspensions as the commonly used procedures they are today arose during the 1960s as a response to the perception. I say perception because the data is somewhat murky about how accurate this feeling actually was of increased student-on-student violence taking place in schools. Whether more students actually were fighting or whether more white teachers and administrators were now feeling anxious about the presence of African-American students in newly desegregated schools The rhetoric around suspension was that it was to be used as a means of removing students who were dangers to their classmates and or serious disruptions to the learning environments of their schools. At least as early as the 1970s, suspensions could appear in two varieties. 
out-of-school suspension, where students were banned from school grounds for the duration of the suspended period, and in-school suspension, where offending students remained in school but were kept in a separate and isolated settings from their usual peers. The idea behind in-school suspension was that when in this separated setting, the student would be engaged for at least part of that time with some sort of intervention, conversations with their academic teacher or an administrator or a social worker that were designed to help them understand and modify their behavior, or at the very least, keep up in their classes. Although depending on the school and the circumstances, it could just as easily be used as a sort of holding tank. By the 1980s, you could find plenty of research attesting to how suspension didn't seem to actually reduce disruptive student behaviors. In fact, much like the disastrous D.A.R.E. program's ironic effect on increasing student drug usage in the 1980s, suspensions seemed to correlate with increased propensity for students to repeat offenses, thus receiving additional suspensions, and thus, well, you can see where that goes. Links between suspensions, both out-of-school and in-school, and decreased academic achievement were also clear and consistent from study to study to study which is not surprising since you're removing students, often those who are already performing poorly, from the locus of instruction in their classrooms. Several major cities, including Baltimore and Oakland, found that reducing their suspension rates had the effect of reducing their dropout rates. Consequently, most states now have a limit on the number of days a student can be suspended, although, generally speaking, a given student in most school districts can be suspended effectively without limit as long as it's for separate behavioral infractions. The first major legal case to deal with the issue of suspensions was in U.S. federal courts Dixon v. Alabama in 1961, which actually dealt with a college setting. Alabama State College had expelled six African-American students, including the named appellant St. John Dixon, as an obvious act of retaliation for the students' participation in civil rights demonstrations. The six students had taken part in a sit-in at the segregated lunch counter of the Montgomery County Courthouse for 90 minutes, at which point the restaurant closed early rather than serve them. No police action followed, but Alabama's governor at the time, John Patterson, personally called Alabama State College's president to demand the students be expelled. The president, Harper Trenholm, actually refused and other students rose up in protest to defend their classmates, during which they were attacked by white counter-protesters armed with baseball bats. Impatient, the governor went to the Alabama State Board of Education, who did go forward to expel St. John Dixon and his five friends, as well as put 20 of the sympathy protesters on probation. This led to an even larger set of rallies in support of the students, and drew the attention of prominent civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy. The students challenged their expulsions in court under the Due Process Clause of the Constitution, arguing that they had been given no form of hearing, nor were they even given a concrete reason for their expulsion. Their legal team, which included such legendary figures as Thurgood Marshall and Derrick Bell, won a victory, establishing that students facing expulsion need to have some sort of hearing or process where they are informed of the reason for their punishment and have some chance to plead their case. Dixon v. Alabama set a precedent that went on to eventually be extended to students in public K-12 schools and for suspensions as well as expulsions. The case that firmly established this extension was 1975's Goss v. Lopez. Like Dixon v. Alabama, this case also involved students being expelled for attending political demonstrations. This time, it was Dwight Lopez, a high schooler in Columbus, Ohio, 
who was involved in a demonstration against the Vietnam War, along with 75 classmates in his school cafeteria. School property got damaged during the demonstration, although Lopez himself denied, nor was he charged with, personally destroying anything. Nevertheless, he was suspended, without any specific reason, and eventually teamed up with the family of another student, a junior high schooler named Betty Crone, who had been suspended for attending an anti-war demonstration in another high school across the city. Along with several other students, their case rose all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in a close 5-4 decision that all students facing suspension were entitled to some measure of due process rights in the United States. As you can tell in these court cases, the concerns were that a practice originally designed to remove students who were committing acts of violence, suspension, was being used in fact to limit and punish student political expression. National data as recently as 2019 reveals that the majority of suspensions across United States schools remain for nonviolent offenses, including drug possession, but also including the use of profanity or other verbal aggression, non-compliance with teacher directions, violations of dress code, variously defined acts of disrespect, and in a mind-bending case of irony, suspensions are frequently issued for students who arrive late or who skip school. Part of the reason for suspensions' continued ubiquity can be traced to the practice of so-called zero-tolerance discipline, which began around the issue of firearms in schools and eventually extended in its heyday during the 1990s and 2000s to cover behavioral infractions all along the spectrum from fistfights down to gum chewing. Zero tolerance in schools began its reign in 1994 when increased public awareness of students bringing guns and other weapons to schools pushed Congress to pass and President Bill Clinton to sign the Gun-Free Schools Act one of those rare moments when the federal government laid down an educational policy. You may recall that public education is highly localized in the United States, with individual states, indeed 13,000 individual school districts within those states, and thousands of more schools within those districts, most often deciding their own policies and being dependent upon their own local funding. The federal government has very little power to dictate what goes on in schools, but does retain some small power of purse strings. Those few times when the federal government does want to influence education, like the passage of Title I to protect the rights of special education students, it requires compliance with a given policy if schools want to keep their right to federal assistance dollars. While federal funds tend to comprise only about 7% of any given school district's budget, no one, especially not perennially cash-strapped institutions like public schools, wants to lose any money and 1994's Gun-Free Schools Act told districts that to keep that cash flowing, they had to revise whatever disciplinary policies they had to institute a mandatory one-year suspension for any student determined to have brought a weapon to school. Now, this approach didn't come out of nowhere. The inspiration for zero tolerance had come from drug enforcement policies that were prominent in the 1980s. And while not every school district got on board after 1994, once the No Child Left Behind Act of 2001 gave state governments increased power to dictate the policies of schools within their borders, some state governments began issuing requirements with far more regulatory teeth than the federal government possessed that schools adopt zero-tolerance policies of some sort or another. Many schools then began extending that one-strike-and-you're-out approach to include not only guns and drugs, but also tobacco possession, school disruptions of all varieties, and pretty soon in some schools, 
any violation of any school rule. And part of what accelerated this trend in the 90s and 2000s was the renewed popularity of the so-called broken windows theory of policing, first coined by criminologists James Q. Wilson and George L. Kelling. Their idea, first publicized widely in a 1982 issue of The Atlantic, is pretty well captured by this passage from it. Quote, Social psychologists and police officers tend to agree that if a window in a building is broken and left unrepaired, all the rest of the windows will soon be broken. This is as true in nice neighborhoods as it is in run-down ones. Window breaking does not necessarily occur on a large scale because some areas are inhabited by determined window breakers, whereas others are populated by window lovers. Rather, one unrepaired broken window is a signal that no one cares, and so breaking more windows costs nothing. End quote. This philosophy, expanded on in Kelling's 1996 book, Fixing Broken Windows, Restoring Order and Reducing Crime in Our Communities, co-authored with Catherine Coles, drew adherence in police departments and city governments across the country, New York City and Boston in particular becoming famous for law enforcement policies based around heavy policing of homelessness, minor vandalism, and truancy, policies that at the time were credited with significant crime reduction in those places, although subsequently those conclusions have come under heavy critical fire. Zero-tolerance fever, though, soon took hold of schools, especially in the wake of highly publicized school shootings like the one at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. In the words of Russell Skiba, professor of educational psychology at Indiana University, quote, the theory was that by providing severe consequences for minor infractions, it would send a message to students that disruptive behavior was unacceptable, end quote. Support for zero tolerance was surprisingly bipartisan, an ideology shared by Republican Rudy Giuliani and Democrat Bill Clinton alike. Even the famous Socialist Teachers Union leader, Albert Shanker, president of the American Federation of Teachers, initially supported such measures. In the same speech where he outlined several proposed progressive education reforms, Shanker added, quote, The truth of the matter is that none of these changes will achieve what we want unless schools are safe and orderly places where teachers can teach and students can learn, end quote. Zero tolerance certainly increased the number of suspensions. Some school districts, like Chicago, saw 50% increases or higher in school suspensions after implementing zero tolerance. The problem, or one of the many problems, was that all of those suspensions weren't making schools safer, more orderly places. An American Psychological Association task force issued a report on zero tolerance in schools in 2008 that echoed previous research on suspensions. I'll quote from their summary. Quote, rather than reducing the likelihood of disruption, school suspension in general appears to predict higher future rates of misbehavior and suspension among students who are suspended. End quote. A little farther down, they write that although the assumption that removing so-called troublemakers would make schools safer may have seemed intuitive, they conclude that, quote, data on a number of indicators of school climate have shown the opposite effect. That is, that schools with higher rates of suspension and expulsion appear to have less satisfactory ratings of school climate, end quote. From what research I was able to find, zero-tolerance policies didn't even seem to succeed in their original purpose of preventing the most egregious acts of violence in schools. According to the National Center for Educational Statistics, the number of disciplinary actions reported by schools for physical aggression, insubordination, and the possession of firearms or other explosive devices didn't change much during the height of the zero-tolerance movement from 2003 to 2009. Zero-tolerance has fallen somewhat out of fashion in recent years for this and other reasons which we'll discuss shortly, 
but suspensions do remain an often used tool in school's disciplinary repertoire, despite their research-demonstrated limitations, for a variety of reasons. Like political leaders in the wider world, principals and other school administrators often derive public support from a perceived image of being tough on crime, as it were, regardless of the efficacy, or lack thereof, of these so-called tough measures. Teachers also generally support the removal of students whose behavior they find disruptive to the learning process, and by and large, when polled, parents do as well, especially if they take the perspective that theirs aren't the children who are being removed from class. Which gets at another problem. Despite the name, zero tolerance was never applied uniformly. In school after school, in state after state, it was black and brown students who were bearing the brunt of suspensions and other disciplinary action. That 2015 Center for Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA report that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, it found that on the average, African-American students were three times more likely to be suspended for the same infractions as white students. For another way to look at that, white suspension rates are about 5%, while African-American suspension rates are about 16%. That means almost one in every six African-American students across the United States will be suspended at least once per year. This is the point where someone might be thinking, well, maybe that just means that African-American students commit more bad behaviors. But the thing is, plenty of research attests that there is minimal difference between African-American and white students when it comes to concrete offenses, such as drug possession or bringing a weapon to school. The big disparities come when teachers and school administrators are making judgment calls, suspending students for behaviors that they consider to be disrespectful, threatening, or even loitering. As just two of many, many examples, researchers at Stanford University ran an experiment where they presented teachers with the same anecdotes of student behavior, but changed the student names to be particularly white-sounding, like Greg or Jake, or particularly black-sounding, like Deshaun or Darnell. By a wide margin, the teachers who got names like Deshaun and Darnell were more likely to suggest harsher discipline, including suspension, for identical behaviors. In another study by researchers at Villanova University and the University of Iowa, African-American girls with darker skin tones were suspended at three times the rate of their peers with lighter skin, even after controlling for previous disciplinary issues, socioeconomic status, and academic achievement. Something else that's racially disproportionate about school discipline involves the impact of suspensions on students. In general, as mentioned, suspensions correlate with lower graduation rates for all students, but for Black and Latinx students, the effect is even more pronounced. Nationally, fewer than 60% of Black and Latinx students who are suspended one or more times end up graduating. Suspensions, in fact, disciplinary referrals in general, also serve as predictors of future incarceration in the prison system, leading to the well-known phrase, school-to-prison pipeline often used to describe the effects of disproportionately harsh or frequent disciplinary actions on students of color. These trends got so bad in 2014 that both the Federal Departments of Education and Justice issued a letter to state education commissioners threatening civil rights actions. So yes, racial disparities were one reason for the slow, and I would argue still in progress, move away from zero tolerance policies in many schools across the United States. Another reason was a procession of articles in news media about particularly egregious abuses of zero-tolerance policies, like elementary schoolers being suspended for bringing butter knives to school in their lunchboxes, or for bringing squirt guns or bubble blowers. 
A kindergartner in Grand Rapids, Michigan was suspended for making a finger gun gesture. A second grader in Baltimore was suspended for biting his Pop-Tart into a shape that the teacher determined to be gun-like. And a ninth grader in Texas was suspended for an entire week for bringing a digital alarm clock that a teacher mistook for a bomb. While it's hard to determine how common these ridiculous kinds of incidents were, they did make headlines, and that eroded public support for zero-tolerance discipline. So too did actual criminal behavior by a small number of school districts, like the infamous Kids for Cash scandal in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, where two judges in 2008 were convicted of accepting financial kickbacks in return for sending juvenile offenders to for-profit detention centers as punishment for infractions as minor as criticizing the principal on social media or trespassing in vacant school facilities. There's a whole documentary film about it, also called Kids for Cash, if you're curious. By and large, though, most of how Zero Tolerance operated wasn't so flashy. It was simply the large-scale practice of schools suspending kids as a first resort, not a last resort, for breaking school rules. Now, it's important to note that one place in which zero tolerance wasn't supposed to be absolute was in regards to special education students. Then, as now, if a student with identified special education needs, see Season 3, Episode 4 for more about that, commits a serious behavioral infraction, that student is first entitled to what's called a manifestation hearing to see if it was her disability, say an emotional management disorder, that was involved in the behavior she exhibited. If so, then that student is not supposed to be suspended or otherwise disciplined, but instead worked with as per her individualized education plan, or IEP, although in extreme cases where she might be a danger to others, she can still be removed to receive those services in a separate setting. Nevertheless, data demonstrated that many students with special learning needs in fact were being disproportionately suspended every day, which was yet another reason why zero tolerance came under fire. By the mid-20-teens, many districts began pivoting away from zero tolerance discipline approaches, including New York City and Los Angeles, which in 2013 banned suspensions for, quote, willful defiance, after which suspensions dropped by 53% and graduation rates rose by 12%. Today, while suspensions are still popular in U.S. schools' disciplinary arsenals, the percentage of in-school suspensions, although it's hard to find hard numbers on this, seems from anecdotal evidence to be the first line of response. Although, again, in-school suspensions can look like anything from a tutorial experience, academic or behavioral, to a holding cell, depending. Some school districts also make use of alternative school placements for students deemed to have serious behavioral issues, the idea being that their education can continue in an environment that supports their learning with better behaviors, while also not disrupting the learning of their peers back at their original school. These placements are usually restricted to about 30 to 45 days, although again, standards vary from state to state and even district to district. And the efficacy of these facilities for teaching either academics or positive behavioral skills are highly variable. As I detailed quite a bit in Season 1, Episode 10, there's a growing understanding that really successfully addressing students who are exhibiting disruptive behavior requires more than just a punitive response. It requires investigating the social and emotional root causes of why those students are acting the way they are. Since the late 1990s, various initiatives under the umbrella of positive behavioral support programs have been operating in various schools, emphasizing a team approach of educators and social work staff whose job it is to come up with collaborative means for engaging students in developing the skills to analyze, monitor, 
and regulate their own behavior. Data suggests that such programs have reduced suspension rates anywhere from 20 to 60 percent in districts where they've been applied successfully. Then there are the set of practices that fall under the rubrics of what's called restorative justice, that use community-based mediation to address serious behavioral infractions. Rather than focusing solely on punishing the perpetrator of a disruptive act, say a student who throws their desk in the classroom, restorative justice looks at that disruptive act in terms of its impact on the whole community. Clearly, every student in that class was affected by that thrown desk, as is the teacher, and the administration and counseling staff that has to handle the fallout, and, well, the whole wider community as well, which is going to hear that story and start reacting in one way or another. Restorative justice-type practices aim to bring representatives of all those groups together, with the perpetrator, for a dialogue. The goal here is for the perpetrator to both understand the impact their actions have had on others, and then to give those others a voice in letting the perpetrator know what they can do to restore the harm that's been caused. Instead of being suspended, the desk-throwing student might wind up taking part in repairing the hole the thrown desk punched in the classroom wall, or in making up for the instructional time they caused their classmates to miss by helping the teacher plan and deliver the next lesson. The goal of restorative justice is to help the community recover, and eventually to reintegrate its disruptive member. The mid-2000s saw initiatives in major U.S. cities like Oakland, California, that reduced their suspensions 87%, and their expulsions down to zero through the use of restorative justice practices. Around that same time, the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales instituted a large-scale pilot restorative justice project that resulted in massive reductions in bullying, racist incidents, and students who cut classes. Restorative justice still isn't the norm in schools in either the UK or the US. It's hard for individual teachers to employ without it being part of a larger school-wide or even community-wide culture. It requires a great deal of training for both school personnel and students alike in order to really work effectively. And it works at its best when it's supported by mental health services. Restorative justice is too often a tough sell in places where public support leans towards the idea of a tough, no-nonsense, more punitive mode of discipline, even when actual research evidence argues against it. In short, while there's no magic solution to managing the most challenging student behaviors, there are other tools available to schools besides suspensions. As a two-decade veteran teacher, I will attest to the monumental challenge of ensuring that I meet the wide variety of learning needs of the hundreds of students I work with every year, and how much more challenging, even sometimes threatening, that job becomes when students exhibit extremely disruptive behavior. My best moments, I think, have come when I've been able to view that disruptive behavior as a chance for engagement, if a student is causing trouble because they're lost in terms of understanding the material, or they're angry that the curriculum doesn't seem relevant to them, or that they can't see a point in what we're doing, or if they're having some troubles at home, and if my conversation with them about their behavior can reveal that and help me adjust what I'm doing to help them, or to get them plugged in with someone who can help them with non-classroom-related issues, then those are much bigger victories than getting the student booted out of school for a few days. Disruptive behavior, says psychologist Jessica Minahan, can be seen as a form of communication and can open the door to addressing the actual root problems in those students' lives. Again, that's all when the magic works. Often I can't figure it out, or the problems are too big for me, and I or my administrators have to make that difficult call about balancing the needs of that student with the needs of all the other students in that class. On those thankfully rare occasions when the student has gotten violent, Yes, they do need to be removed from the situation for all our safety, 
But what happens next to address whatever is causing that student to behave so inappropriately is really important, not just for that student's own well-being and development, but for the sake of the whole institution and community. And for anything less than those most egregious of incidents, a suspension, to me, always reads like a failure of us adults to get that student what they need within the bounds of the school building. Students present with so many needs, and it's not fair to expect schools to somehow pick up the slack for all of the safety nets, family, economic, social, mental health, that have somehow not been present in many students' lives. Yet at the same time, school is held up as this meritocratic escape hatch for students in exactly those situations of deprivation. We tell them if they study hard and do well in school, they'll get the tools to bring them and their family increased security and higher standard of living. Already schools fail to live up to that promise in so many ways. To then turn around and deny our most vulnerable students access to school at all through suspensions compounds the problem. Financial resources for so many schools are always so tight, but investments in alternate behavioral support programs to supplement or even replace suspensions have the potential to pay huge dividends in keeping those kids in school and learning, which ultimately, I believe, helps all of us in the long run. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.